We're in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says that the church was in God the Father and in Christ Jesus the Lord. And because of that, he says, may grace and peace be yours. Uh, Because of their position in Christ, they knew who they were in Christ. They had grace, which means God's unmerited favor, and peace, which means God's shalom, God's blessing in their life. And that came to them because when they heard the apostolic preaching of the cross, they received it not as merely words, but they received it as the very word of God. And they received it, Paul says here in chapter 1, they received it with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction or full assurance. He says, you welcome the message joyfully, with great joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, in spite of suffering. And you became imitators of us, Paul says. And you became a model to all the churches in Asia Minor. And then he says this. There's a pattern they followed. Listen to verses 8 through 10. The Lord's message rang out from you, which means exploded. It rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report. Everybody talks about it. They themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols, continuously turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. And number two, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And we're looking at these three sequential statements. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did that two weeks ago, today. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That's the paradigm. As you receive the word of God, and as it comes to you in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, and as we imitate good role models, and as we welcome the message with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We, we turn to God from idols continuously. And, and we have an eternal perspective. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So, so this morning, now on a basic level, church, on a basic level, we begin by saying, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is. God is. In Acts chapter 17, it's an account of Paul in Athens, and he goes to Athens. Verse 16, while he's waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean And Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were people who who probably believed in what Aristotle said in 320 B.C. Aristotle talked about the unmoved mover. There's a great creator being that has no beginning and who has no end, but he cannot be defined. Basically, that's what he said. And so these Epicureans and Stoics were were respected people. The Epicureans were pleasure-seeking people who lived within limits. They weren't, they weren't wild and crazy, but they, they lived for pleasure within limits. 
Stokes were people who had come to believe that life is just kind of painful and difficult, and so you just grin and bear it. And I would say today, we are surrounded by Epicurean and Stoic people. We're surrounded by Epicurean people in our own culture who say, I'm going to live life with great and pursue pleasure within limits. I, I want to hold a good job. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be the front page cover story for any newspaper. But within limits, but I'm going to live for, live for myself and live for pleasure. And then as you get older, you go, well, you know, life does operate on the law of diminishing returns. I'm just going to grin and bear it. I'm going to be stoic in my deportment of life. I don't want to blow it. I'm just, I'm, but I'm going to go for it in life. And so Paul, Paul reasons with these, and, and it says they preached the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him to a, to a big philosophical discussion place called the Areopagus. And this is what he says. Verse 28. For in him, in this God, this great creator God, in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own people have said, we are his offspring. And then he went on, he said, though, the primary building block, there is a God, but this God is fully revealed in the person of Jesus. That's what he says. Verse 31. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says there is a God. He is. But this God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Last week, we had a wonderful missions conference. And just thank you, missions committee. Um, uh, let me just, just on the side note, on Saturday morning, we had uh, a big missions gathering, of course, Friday night and Sunday. But on, on Saturday morning, big breakfast. There, there were probably 550 to 600 people here. And what really gratified my heart is that of that 500 to, to 600, probably 65%, I asked this to several people, said, yeah, I think you're right, 65% were under the age of 30. But also what gratified me is there were probably 30 to 35 people there who were over the age of 65. <laughs> they just said, we have a passion for Jesus, they said, in, in, our, in our last gasping moments of life. <laughs> we have a passion for Jesus. And, and these young people said, we, we want to go for it. I mean, it's encouraging, very encouraging. But we had a man here named from the Czech Republic, a very well-thought man. He was talking about relationships in the Czech Republic. He ministers to a group called the Bohemians versus the Moravians. The Moravians are more spiritually minded. The Bohemians are not. They've been postmodern for generations. And, and he, he met, he said, I've got a good friend. I'm making a relationship with one of these guys. And so he said, we're going down the road the other day somewhere together. And he looked at me and says, do, 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 you, do you really believe, you, are, are, you, are you trying to tell me that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth? That's just basic theism 101. Didn't even get to the reality of Jesus. He said, yeah. He said, I know that's what you're telling me, his friend said. But if there is a God who made the heavens and the earth and everything I've been taught by my parents, by my teachers, everything I have taught my children and their contemporaries is a lie. Because they believe in a strictly materialistic world. Communist, you know. We say there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. 
And we also say this, and we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Savior, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heavens. He sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe that. There's an article in the Washington Post last month about a man named, named Lawrence Egbert. 84 years old, anesthesiologist, retired, Johns Hopkins University professor, lecturer, campus minister to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship at Johns Hopkins. Gifted man. He's called Dr. Death. He boasts that he's been involved in helping over 100 people commit suicide. And in the article, this is what the writer wrote about Dr. Egbert. When the end does come, Egbert figures he'll, quote, go into the ground and rot. He doesn't believe in any afterlife, though many of his patients have found comfort in the belief that they were going to a better place. I don't think it's worthwhile to worry about what happens to you when you're dead, close quote. He's 84. And he can see the finish line. Makes you want to weep. We believe. This is what Freud said in a wonderful little book by a guy named Armand Nicolai, who's professor of medicine at Harvard. He said, Freud called religious faith, quote, an attempt to produce or procure a certainty of happiness and a protection against suffering through a delusional remodeling of reality and no one he said needless to say who shares a delusion ever recognizes it as such close quote that's what you call circular thinking if you're ever taking philosophy it's a thesis by thesis by thesis you know in other words if you believe in faith you're deluded and you can't see through your delusion because you're deluded but we say christ is the hope of our lives we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he's coming again. We believe there is a heaven. So let me talk about the, the, just some statements about, about the reality of heaven. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Start in verse 19. Paul says, Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, dietary laws. Their glory is in their shame. They're boasting their, about their... Their circumcision, I think he's saying. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to transform everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We eagerly await. I got to preach on this last week at the North Campus. Wonderful. Three baptisms. Great service. We eagerly await. We long for it. He'll transform our lowly bodies to be like his body. He will subdue everything under his control. That's our hope. Or in, in, in Hebrews... Chapter 11, listen to this, verses 24 to 28, talking about the, the hope that motivated Moses. 
Hebrews eleven twenty four. Listen. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. One translation says, the passing pleasures of sin. Why? He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the, the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. There's a movie years ago called As Good As It Gets. Jack Nicholson played a man who was a very bizarre writer named Morris Udall, a very famous writer. And it is, uh, has a lot of interesting statements in the movie. He's, he's, he is um, just a bizarre guy. Jack Nicholson can play bizarre guys very well. So in, in one of the most, uh, I think, interesting parts of the movie, Jack Nicholson bursts into the office of his psychiatrist named Dr. Green. And he says, Dr. Green, I've got to see you right now. And he said, uh, he said, Morris, your appointment is next week. I'm in the middle of a session right now. I cannot talk to you. And Nicholson, portraying this guy, turns to him and says, he says, you know, how, how can you diagnose me as being extremely obsessive compulsive and not expect this behavior, you know, which I thought was a great line. And then he ushers him out into his office, and in his office are seven or eight people waiting to see the psychiatrist. And Nicholson stops, and he looks around and he says, who's to say this is not as good as it gets? Incredible line. I've often thought that the people with no hope of heaven, with no concept of the sins that they have and the guilt they have covered by the cross, for them, this is as good as it gets. And for some of you, that's, that's okay. But for some of you, are going, throw me a lifeline. But for those of us who know Christ and who have the hope of heaven, and know that our lowly bodies will one day be transformed to be like his resurrection body. And he will subdue everything. And there is an endless eternity awaiting us called heaven that the Bible speaks of time after time. For, for us, this is, to one degree or another, as bad as it is going to get. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle, which is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, captures it so well. In the Cronks of Narnia, if you haven't read them, I would, I would plead you to please read them. I don't care if you're 12 or 92. But in, in this, the last book, the children are always ushered into this mythical kingdom of Narnia, magical kingdom, and they, they fall down a hill, they go through a wardrobe, and in the last book, they go into the kingdom, 
They're, they're going down, going back to school in a train, and all of a sudden they're whisked out of the train. And they go into, magic, into this mythical, wonderful kingdom called Narnia, and they see Aslan triumph ultimately over everything. And this is the very last page of the book. And, and it says this. Aslan, who represents Christ, says, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. The smallest child, Lucy, says, We're so afraid of being sent back away from you, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. And Aslan says, No fear of that, child. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope arose within them. And Aslan says, There was a real accident in the train. Your father, your mother, and all of you, as, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, see the Shadowlands here, died in the train accident. And then he says this, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. This is this. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one that went before. And that's just, he says it so well. Now, so, so, so everything, church, everything, just like the church at Thessalonica, everything is lived out under the banner of this bracing truth. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. His name is Jesus. We we live under that truth. There's a little hymn. We sing it here frequently. It goes like this. This is a threefold truth on which our faith depends. And with this joyful cry, worship begins and ends. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. On this we fix our minds as praying side by side. We take the bread and wine from Christ the crucified. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. This is the threefold truth which, if we hold it fast, changes the world and us and brings us home at last. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Do you have that hope? Does that hope just motivate you? Craig Harris spoke last Sunday night. I didn't think I'd ever quote Craig Harris. (laughs) So this is kind of a stretch. But Craig spoke last Sunday night. He said so well. He said... He said, you know, when you know the reality of Christ, either you go like they've gone to India or you go without 
And we all go on our knees. I'm sure he got it from somebody else. But was, that thought was so good. It was so good. So, so let me just talk about this bracing truth. Let me read just a few verses and, and see how, how the, the biblical writers motivated people with this incredible hope of heaven. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Listen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. I command you to give. I, I command you to not be stingy people. I commend you to know the joy of tithing. You, you, God, God is. And he says, in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You don't get saved because you give. Because you've tasted salvation, you give. Hebrews 13 Closing this very glorious book. He says this, the writer says this in verses 13 and 14. Listen. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Go to Jesus outside the camp where he was crucified. Bearing the disgrace he bore. Why? Why take the hit for being a Christian? Why take the hit for being a Christ follower? Listen. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. The glory of heaven. Or or listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, he says, uh, says, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Aliens and exiles. We're, We're... we're, we're aliens and exiles. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. And there's this in, in verse 4 of chapter 4. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse upon you. So, you know, these people that have an Epicurean or Stoic worldview, they just think it's strange that you guys don't jump into the same dissipation lifestyle they're involved in. They just, they look at you like you're a speckled bird in a white landscape. What is, what is this? But we do that because we're, we're, we're aliens and exiles. Listen to me. Our children's pastor for years has talked about VeggieTales. I've never watched VeggieTales. They're, they're very good. But the guy who wrote them is a guy named Paul Vischer. And he wrote an article recently. I'm going to post it. I thought it was very good. And he's, I think he's my age or older. And he says this, he says, he says, parents be very, very careful about letting your children watch good moral TV. He said, he says, the average child in America watches, he says, five to six hours of TV a day. And, and even if they're good moral programs, he says, when they go to, to school all day long and they can't hear the name of God mentioned, 
And they come home and they watch TV where everybody's world, everybody's worldview is everything, but God is never mentioned. We are building people with a sterile, unchrist-centered worldview. I think he's on the target. And he says some world programs do more harm than good. Now that's an interesting, interesting spin. Since they get along just fine without calling out to God for mercy. Their families just function wonderfully without calling out to God or, or having thoughts about eternity. And I'm telling you, the Bible says that, that, that we must be people who, who, who see this truth. And it's blazing truth. And I'd rather be hotly opposed by people like the new atheists they talk about than to be dismissed by a Freud who says, your delusion is just a delusion. You can't see through it because you're deluded. Have a, have a nice day. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. And so another, so if, if, if our hope is in, in the future then we're constantly looking for the city that is to come. And C.S. Lewis. I read this and I thought about Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Let me just quote it. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eyes are bad... How vast is the darkness? In other words, if you look at life with a jaundiced view and not a supernatural orientation, then, then, then your body's flooded with darkness. But, but if, if you look at it through the lens of the God who's the creator God, whose name is Jesus, he says this, how true it is that the seen one, that's, that's Christ's followers, walks out into joy and happiness, unthinkable, where the dull senseless eyes of the world see only destruction and death. And once again, I'm thinking about these hymns. This is one of the first hymns I heard when I was converted. It, says, it goes like this. And I didn't really understand it until years later what the hymnist was saying. He says, Heaven above is softer blue Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs or flow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. And what he's saying is that, is that, when I came to see that Christ is the creator God, it was not just a growth of a plant. It was a growth of a plant that shouts forth the praise of God. The incredible panorama of beauties absolutely was, was thunder striking to me. And then I, was, I re read this recently. I went... See, I'm not a I'm a liberal arts guy. So when I read stuff like this, I go, many of you have already thought about this. This is an Economist magazine, February's 11th issue. It says that um, there's always been speculation about why are zebras striped. I've never really thought of that, but people ask that. And it said that there was a, there, there was a, 
biology professor from the University of Budapest, then went to Africa and did exhaustive study, and he just released his report. His name is Gabor Horvath. Um, he just released his report in the Journal of Experimental Biology. He talks about, you know, wh- why don't the tsetse flies and the horse flies just sit on the zebra? And this is what he's written in this journal. Their first discovery was that stripes attracted fewer flies than solid uniform colors. So I guess maybe during the snow season we should be striped. Maybe that'd be good. As intriguingly though, they also found that the least attractive pattern of stripes was precisely those of the sort of width found in zebra hides. Zebra stripes do therefore repel horse flies. Why? This is what they found out. Dr. Horvath thinks it might be related to a horsefly's ability to see polarized light, which imposes a sense of horizontal and vertical on an image. Horseflies are known to prefer horizontal polarized light. Possibly the most vertical stripes on a zebra confuse the fly's tiny brain and thus stop it from seeing the animal. I just went, (laughs) come on, I mean, God said, you know, I'm going to make heavens and the earth. I'm going to make these zebras. I, man, part of, flies are the result of the fall. The fall's coming. And I'm, I'm going to make the stripes like this instead of like this so they won't be bitten to death all their days. And I, I, I look at creation and go, you've got to be kidding me. See, do you see the great creator God whose name is Jesus? Do you, do you understand Christ? is glorious and he is good. Now, this quote by John Newton, I'm, I'm over time, but let me give you a couple more things. John Newton says that once you mature in faith in Christ, the Christian, the Christian's great business is to behold the glory of God in Christ. And by beholding, he is changed into the same image. Hear that? Which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. When you behold Jesus, you see life in a different way and you change into his image. And that's why it's incredibly important to fix our eyes on the hope of heaven. Do you have that hope? Luke 21. Jesus says this. He says, be careful. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will come upon you unexpectedly like a trap. Boom. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down. And one scholar says the term weighed down means to live in excessive attraction to an intoxicating and sinful world. And it's so easy to be intoxicated, not even in a bad way, with, with, with the world. We need to say to ourselves, time after time after time, the best is yet to be. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Look to him, church. Look to him. Fix your eyes upon him. Think of the glory to come. Lord, thank you for the, 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 this passage. Thank you for the, 
arresting power of the Word of God under the application of the Holy Spirit to impact us. Lord, we pray that we would not be um, intoxicated by, by, by the world. I pray that we would embrace your gifts and love your gifts and rejoice in your gifts without being given over to idolatry. I pray that we would live in such a fashion that we say to ourselves and our contemporaries, I believe in in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe He's coming again. I believe He died on the cross for my sins. He rose victorious over death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's praying for me in heaven. And He's preparing a place. So Lord, give us that mind. And, and, and the way we live and the way we talk and the way we drive our cars and the way we, you know, just say, just change us, Lord. As we behold you, let us glory in you and be like you, Jesus. And as we behold the creation you spoke into being, may we just be astounded at the goodness of God in whose name we pray. Amen.